right. So hey, Scarlettos. Think- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Really go, go, go. <laughs> sorry. You were thinking? Uh, no, so I was thinking about this, that we could do, like, companion episodes about movies or shows or documentaries about true crimes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so... I think they're... Well, because we have an interesting perspective because yes. we are in the entertainment business. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, think, I think us covering these kinds of things makes actual sense. I do, too. As we go through and we record more episodes, we're going to find things that we're more interested in. Oh, for sure. And yeah. then it'll lead us down different roads. And, and, it, and I think topics are subject matters that we're more drawn to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll find our way. It will it'll we'll be led by that interest and not the reverse. But it I, I mean that's part of this process that I think I really love is that every week or every time we because we come up with our episodes randomly, which I like because I think it's sort of the timing makes sense. And it's usually you or I texting to each other, Hey, we should do this or we should do this or we should do this. It's completely random, but I think it's in the moment for us and maybe what we're looking at. And there's some relevance to it. Like the Netflix's the devil next door. This is a sensitive subject for a lot of people. Um, you know, the Holocaust is obviously a very serious thing, especially to, to the Jewish folks who were persecuted to the tune of 6 million people. There's no talking about the subject matter without feeling some compassion for these people and the horrors that they had to had to deal with in the moment. This is why we're going to talk about this because I, I watched The Devil Next Door, the documentary on Netflix. I think it was three or four parts. I think it was five episodes. I binged it all in one sitting. Yeah. me. Uh, actually, I split it up over two nights Okay, because I honestly had to stop watching after a little while because it was so disturbing. Really? Me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um, let's, let's talk about the, the case. Let's talk about Don, John Demanyuk. 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 John Demanyuk. Let's talk about Don, John Demanyuk. It's hard to say that. (laughs) It's almost like a porn name. John Demanyuk. Jumanji. Um, John Demanyuk. So for these purposes, we're going to call him, um, and my, I will be calling him John because that will be easier for me. I was fascinated from it just based on the first description because I couldn't believe that I had never heard about this. And it was so... This man, this genocidal maniac, potentially, had gone unnoticed for over 40 years. Well, I think that's the way it works. I mean, I think that, you know, these folks in war do things that they choose to do. And after the fact, they either have regret or they feel the need to escape, to not be persecuted for their actions. You know, the Holocaust, there were a lot of guards that were made into guards because they were actually prisoners of war. Um, They didn't choose to be guards, you know, so it was the, Hey, You've got two choices. We're going to kill you or you're going to be a guard and you're going to have to do these things. So they were in effect, not really having a choice either, but some of them obviously had a choice and the way that they could, you know, performed these duties, this case centered around what they would call Ivan the terrible, a guard in a certain, uh, Trubinsky. I don't remember the name of the, the, the camp. But that's how this case started. Yeah. So 
essentially in 1975, the KGB comes out. KGB. KGB comes out and suggests that a list of people who they consider, Ukrainian immigrants who they consider to be, be Nazi war criminals. I... I'm still confused on why anybody believes the KGB about anything, but somebody decided to take this seriously. And the United States... Of all um, people, the United States, by the way. Because, <laughs> in 1975! Yeah, I mean, they Cold were War. still running... Yeah, I mean, the United States was still running atomic bomb drills because of the Cold War at this point. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't quite get it. But the KGB, again, had a list. They gave it to the U.S., your dog just came I got it. <laughs> you little guy. Come here, Rusty. You, oh, I do want to just pet you, though. Come on, turd. <laughs> Uh-oh. Bye. Oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. I look no down and no like... animals were hurt in the recording of this podcast. <laughs> All right, so back to back to the KGB and uh, Da John, oh God. John Demonyuk. John, which to be a little sidebar, I actually found fascinating that I think his name actually is John. I kept on waiting for the documentary to call him by a more Ukrainian sounding name, but he just was John. I think that's his name. Yeah, it's a biblical name. I'm not surprised. Sure, but biblical in Ukraine. I mean, it's Christian. The Catholics, right? What's that? Are they Catholics? I think they're Russian Orthodox. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, I might be completely uh, off base here. Not important. Yeah, no. I'm pretty okay. sure he wasn't going to church. <laughs> um, all right, so we've got the KGB flipping, you know, the United States and apparently the world, this list of Ukrainian guards, U- Ukrainian people who were supposed to be participating in Nazi war crimes. So... This guy, at the time, I think he was 60-something. Yeah, he was in his 60s. He had a family. He was a retired Ford um, auto worker. He gets told by the U.S. that they're going to revoke his citizenship after he had already been naturalized years earlier. And they send him off to Israel for a trial. So the crimes didn't happen in the United States, so that they weren't going to try him in the United States for those, but they did extradite him to Israel. You can imagine the chaos as this person who was supposedly identified. You got to say that over. Oh, supposedly. You love when I say supposedly. I hate it so much. I know. I sent you a note the other day about it. I know. And all of those things on your list drive me nuts. I know. Okay. So, (laughs) So, you know, they they decide to send this guy. He's extradited Israel for trial. He is being tried as as identified, supposedly identified as uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, a guard who was... Apparently very, very vicious to the folks um, in Trill. I'm going to look up the name of this, Brittany. Triple, Trill, okay. Uh, so, Ivan the Terrible is accused of some very heinous actions. Some of the things that Ivan the Terrible is accused of doing are cutting off the breasts of women, hurting, and then uh, killing thousands of Jews at one time into a gas chamber. Uh, cutting off the limbs of people, targeting women, children, and men. Uh, He did not discriminate in who he was vicious to, and had a suggested kill count of over 800,000. 
Now, that number by itself is unreal. But when you think about the Holocaust claims the lives of 6 million Jews, and one man potentially was responsible for 800,000 of those. Yeah, that's a fairly large percentage. That's unreal. It's crazy. Treblanca. Uh, yes. Did I say that right? Treblanca. Yes, I remember. So, absolutely. So, again, this guy, now it's decided that he's probably Ivan the Terrible. There's some kind of documentation they have that they have with his name on it that people have, uh, have witnessed that this is the person who is responsible for these crimes. He was one of the most feared guards at Sobibor and Treblinka concentration camps. So, Again, this is a trial in Israel. These Jewish folks are pissed. Yeah. This, you, I would suggest watching the, the documentary, the series. It's unbelievable. The circus that ensues around this first trial is crazy. The first thing I, I want to mention about that, and guilty or not guilty, being a Nazi war criminal, and I almost feel like it would have been better for him to be sent to The Hague as an international criminal and not justifying or suggesting that he is not guilty and the Jewish people had anything against or, or had a predetermined judgment, but just based on the accusations against him. And there were still people, there were still survivors and direct descendants of individuals that were killed in the Holocaust or lived through the Holocaust. So the feelings were still very raw. I agree with you, regardless of whether he did it or not. Um, you know, when the claims first arose, essentially what Demonyuk said was that it was a case of mistaken identity, and the man shown on the SS prison camp ID card that the survivors claimed was him was not him. Mm, if you see this card and you see the pictures of this guy, if the picture is accurate to the card... I have a feeling it's him. Okay. Whether he's Ivan the Terrible right. or not, I think is irrelevant. And I think that was the mistake of the first trial, was that they tried to be really specific yes. about who this guy was. As we talked, again, we said, he's going to trial in Israel. He's, he, first off, he's got to find a, an attorney in Israel yeah. who will actually like defend him. He got two. He got one guy from the United States, uh -huh. which... Apparently, was his father was a Nazi sympathizer, so that didn't oh, go yeah. so well. Yeah. And then there was another guy, Sarif, Sarit. What was his name? That was Sharif. It might be. Yeah. It reminds me of Omar Sharif. I'll look it up. Yeah, maybe. This guy is like picture Johnny Cochran spotlight, but way worse. Like. He he truly, admittedly, only took this trial so he would get notoriety. And he was, by and large, the only person in Israel who was willing to defend and stick by their feelings that John was innocent. Yeah. Right or wrong, he was the most unpopular person in Israel besides John Demoniak. And proudly unpopular. He thrived on it. Yeah. He loved playing the villain. He, that guy is, when I think of a picture for Webster's Dictionary of Attorney, this is the guy. <laughs> Again, you know. Kind of he, sleazy. 
totally yeah, sleazy. Yeah, for like, sure. Kind of reminds me of like Miami sleazy. He's got like uh-huh. gold chains and his belly kind of hangs over his pants. And he's like, hey, I'm so slick and so amazing. I'm smarter than everybody. And that case was really hard because, again, this guy's the Ukraine. Here's John Jemanyuk. God, I hope I'm saying it right. Man, I, JD. There, just stick with JD. JD. John Demoniak. Yay! Woo, I did it! Sitting in this trial, there's tons of coverage. He's got headphones on because he he probably doesn't understand what people are saying. He doesn't speak Hebrew. He does not speak Hebrew. This whole trial is happening in Hebrew. If he's this guy or Ivan the Terrible or if he's another guard, the only Hebrew he had were the people he was escorting into gas chambers. So horrible. Um, So he's sitting there and I think that Go works really works against him because you know a lot of times when I was watching this documentary and I was seeing him in the courtroom I was like God you know he doesn't even seem to care he's kind of smiling off and looking off into the distance sometimes sitting in a room full of Jewish folks who absolutely hate him they want to destroy him on sight and they are visibly livid with him yes they, it's it's an open and shut case for them there's no doubt about it well. You know, one of the big reasons why is that they have multiple people who can stand in front of him and say, look him in the eye and say, you were the person who killed my family. Then the people who were, who were, you know, are um, witnesses against him were children. You know, they were probably young when this happened. So their memory of this is first off, probably very, very strong, but it may be different than what really happened. And I'm not saying this guy wasn't a bad guy because at the end of the day, not to blow it for everybody, but I do believe that this, the John Demoniuk, I do believe he was, um, an SS prison camp guard. I do believe that I believed he was there. I believed he did something, but what is hard for me to understand is how you've got survivors on the stand who are pro- her, who are witness witnesses against this guy saying that they specifically saw him doing specific things. And I believe that they saw him do something, but I don't know if they could really tie him to this Ivan, the terrible character, because I'm not even sure they know what that character is. Like, yeah. what did this guy do? They're in a prison camp. They see they're, they're limited by what they understand that these guards are doing. So, you know, they see this guy do a horrible thing, but is he Ivan the Terrible? Does it matter? I don't know. I don't think so. Whether he killed 80,000 or 800,000 right. people or whether he killed four, for me, it's the same. I agree. It, it, it should be. He should have been tried right off the bat for war crimes, being a Nazi guard and killing probably thousands of Jews. But as you said, he was targeted specifically for being Ivan the Terrible. And a little side note, talking about memories, particularly the memories of children, I've heard I heard this a while ago, and it stuck with me, and I don't know if it's true or not, but from a psychological standpoint, I have heard that when you remember past events, you are not remembering the event, you're remembering how you remembered it the time before. Oh. So, so then definitely the way their perception of that is, is everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I do think he was there, but in what capacity, you know, do we want to be specific about it to try him and is it necessary? Yeah. And I think that there probably would have been a true open and shut case and really no question at all. If he was simply tried for being a Nazi guard. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that was the mistake of the, uh, 
uh, of the prosecutor, actually, because there were what they talked about in this case, you know, and, and we won't go on too long about this because we want you guys to watch the documentary. It is really fascinating. But, um, you know, they they really focused a lot on this Ivan the Terrible character. And again, I don't I don't know if that was necessary to try this person for the crimes. The, the crimes were enough. And I think that's really how they lost their case. Also, to me, there was a lot of drama around this case. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance. There were some some older folks who were obviously Holocaust survivors who were asked to supply witness ter- testimony against Demoniac, and they did. And these poor folks, you know, they've been through enough. They've been traumatized. And there were instances where you had multiple older men, you know, probably in their eighties talking about the situation. And then they would give you all of this really detailed information about what happened. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, which was crazier, you had uh, the end of the interview or the end of the witness, by the way, Mr. So-and-so, how did you get here today? And the answer was, I took the train and this person was taking the train from somewhere that there was obviously no train. If he was going from one country to another, he just, I think that that was the failure of the case, you know, to put these, uh, a couple of things to have these people with to apply witness testimony. I think that's great, but to disrespect them in, in the way that they were, the defense approached them, I thought was really sad, you know, because it really did break down the prosecution's case when these people couldn't even remember basic information, but they were adamant they remembered this guy. And this guy was Ivan the Terrible. And uh, it was it was really hard to watch. It was really sad. So I will say what is essentially like, there's a big twist about halfway through this series during the during the trial based on the accounts of one of the witnesses, who is, at this point, I think the most vocal and vociferous witness. He actually gets up and walks over to John, and John extends his hand to shake this man's hand. And the man loses it. And he starts going off in Hebrew. And sure, justifiably so. He is recognizing this this guy, John, as this Nazi war criminal. But... I'm not going to spoil what the twist is, but very quickly after that, the defense presents evidence that calls into question the credibility of his account. And very detailed, very, it was something the, when the defense introduced this new piece of evidence, it really gave me pause. This guy was so emotional and presented such a scene, but after hearing what the new evidence was, it really made me question how genuine he was. Yes, I agree with you, but two things about the evidence, and I'm going to blow it, so you guys need to to watch the documentary before you listen to the rest of this. This person, again, I think that the evidence that they were proposing sort of broke down this witness's credibility was, again, from the KGB, number one. Uh Uh-huh, true point, yeah. how much is that credible? But the evidence of it's in and of itself, because he... It was wherever it came from, that evidence was real. And what that evidence was, was this man and a group of other people had given witness accounts years and years, years and years earlier that I right, right the, after the end of the war. Yeah. 
had given they they testified that Ivan the Terrible was actually killed in some kind of revolution at the camp. Right. It was like an uprising. And this witness was part of that and actually wrote this. Yes. And so there's that evidence that he says that Ivan the Terrible, who he's now saying uh, is right in front of him. He said earlier that this guy was killed. So when they talked to him about this, his recollection of this witness account from much earlier was that it was what he wished would have happened. It was a fantasy. He dreamed about it. Yeah. I, That's a tough one from a legal standpoint. And when you're trying to find someone guilty of a significant amount of crimes and you're trying to say that this is this guy to kind of take a step back and recant your your information because you had a fantasy that you documented as reality very, very early on after the world. Now, sure. There was a lot of trauma. Um, I'm sure, you know, after the war, he was probably still very young, but there was never a conversation about how this could happen. No, it, it was presented almost as his fictional retelling of the way that he wanted things to go, but it was not treated that way. It was treated as evidence so much so that, the Soviet Union at the time and probably the United States figured we don't have to search for this guy because we have evidence that he's dead. Exactly. Well, and, and there was evidence that there was actually an uprising. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, you know, film of it. Right. I mean, they, for, for good or bad, the, the Holocaust was pretty well documented from a filmmaking standpoint. I mean, there was a lot of images, fair warning about this documentary, by the way, or this documentary mm. series, it is graphic as as any Holocaust film there is in the world where you see all of this, you know, disastrous ugh, dehumanization of these poor people, it's, it's as bad as that, if not worse, because now we're looking at a person who we're suggesting is the person who actually was responsible for it. It's raw footage. It's untamed. So, yeah, be careful with this. It actually reminded me of footage that you might see if you go to the National Holocaust Museum. Exactly. So we've got our trial in Israel. As expected, John Demoniak lost this trial. Right. He, he was, was found guilty. Found guilty. Put into jail. He and his, and, and just so we're all clear about this, just about halfway through the trial, they decide that, I think it's O'Connor, who is the U.S. attorney who's, who's yep. helping with the case, the the Israel attorney decided that O'Connor was not a good attorney anymore. Or let me rephrase that. John Demoniak and his family, it is said, decided that O'Connor was not representing them well. So they shifted all of the representation to their Israel attorney. Correct. Who I can't remember specifically how to say his name, but you'll see it in the documentary. That'll be a surprise for you. Irrelevant. You will know who he is because he is, he it's is obvious. Bigger than life. It's um he's like the Jerry Springer of he like attorneys. Is. It's kind of crazy. And he doesn't care. He's in his Ferraris and his Porsche. And I'm like, dude, you're talking about the Holocaust. Can you have a little respect? I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it just feels like this is just such a ego game. While he was in prison waiting to be executed, they built a gallows. Because they wanted to be a public execution. They wanted to embarrass this man. And they also wanted to know that his death was imminent. So they were building the gallows right outside his cell. So he could hear the construction of the death tool that was going to be used against him. 
And they also have a lot of video of him in his uh, cell with pictures plastered all over it, wearing little jockey shorts and a little tank top. And I don't know when I, it, there were so many weird things about the series that I think it's worth a watch. Um, but you know, the coverage of it, it there, it's just, there's a lot of information out there. And again, if you look at the documentation of, of him and, and, and if he is the, I, I do think he's the person in the picture, whether the picture goes with his ID is to be determined. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe that he, he, that is him in the picture. And we know that that picture is of an SS guard. So regardless There's no question of, about that, yeah, regardless of whether, I mean, he's wearing the clothes yeah, yeah. of an SS uh-huh. guard. Uh, he's an older gentleman now, 60, 65, yep. something like that. They appeal in, in the, in the appeal and the discussions around the appeal, there were a lot of conversations and a lot of evidence that was brought forward that, really shut down or at least provided enough um, reasonable doubt that this person may have not been Ivan the Terrible. Now, never in the appeal did they talk about him being anyone else because that wasn't the point of the appeal, but they won the appeal. At the end of the day, John Demonyuk was essentially won the appeal and was sent home. He returns to the U.S. He gains his citizenship back. Easy for me to say. He comes back. And another investigation starts of him uh, by the Germans because even he was found not guilty of being Ivan the Terrible, but there was a lot of evidence presented that really could not be argued against that he was at minimum a guard at the death camps. Exactly. And so while he was adamant that it was mistaken identity with Ivan the Terrible, I don't think he was... First off, I don't think he was... He he never said he wasn't there. No, you know, you're right. He, he never actually said it. that he was at Sobibor. Yes. Um, he actually said he was there. Now, he said his proximity was based on him being a prisoner of war, but at some point he transitioned into being one of these guards. Mm-hmm. So he never denied that. I think that the evidence became overwhelming after we dug in a little bit, or the Germans dug in. And I find it interesting because then you've got the Germans now... Um, pushing to get demonic back. And again, his U S citizenship was stripped in 2002 after judge declared that he had provided insufficient evidence of what he had done during the war period. So what I found really interesting about this is before his citizenship was revoked, while he was more or less being investigated for extradition, whether or not he would be eligible for it. He knew he was being watched and followed and presented in outward physical ailment difference. He presented himself as being a meek, decrepit old man while he knew that he was being watched. But when he thought that he was not being watched, he was free. He was able to move around freely and play with his grandkids as if nothing was wrong. And I will be, I'll be honest, this was, for me, this was the turning point that I was like, I was not, I was never convinced that he was Ivan the Terrible because I honestly just felt that it was too far-fetched that this horrible Nazi war criminal that killed 800,000 people was an old man in Cleveland. But I, I still believed that he was probably a Nazi guard, but I wasn't 100% convinced until I saw the lengths he was willing to go to try and prove that he was not who he was. Yeah. That to me was like, wow, all right, this guy really is, he's not Ivan maybe, but 
he's a bad guy. Yeah. He definitely struck me as a bit of a psychopath. Mm, I didn't um, get that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got that in the way that he demonstrated himself in the Israel trial. Okay. I really felt like he did not help himself and his personality traits in that trial, I felt were almost offensive. Now, while he had his little headphones on and he yeah, was yeah. listening to people speak in a different language, um, I, he just wasn't respectful. I didn't feel like he was respectful enough. I feel like that he was dismissive at times and he should have definitely not been smiling when, in the times that he was smiling. I felt like that he, he regardless of whether he, he, I mean, he's, he, he has to have respect for the Holocaust, even if he's not Ivan the Terrible, right. or even if he's a guard. It just didn't seem like he cared enough. See, so one thing I want to mention, again, we talk about Germany wanting to try him now yeah. because there was enough evidence. He was stripped of his U.S. citizenship in 2002. He didn't leave the U.S. until 2009. So he was in the U.S. for seven more years. So by the time he was sent to Germany for this trial, he was 90. And how does that happen that you're stripped of your citizenship? But you stay here for seven years? How was he not deported immediately? I have no idea. No idea. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I want to quickly give my opinion on his original trial also, because I I was watching him as much as you could watch from the documentary footage. But watching him, I, I felt that he did take on a presence of being uh, kind of a, a proud strong person he didn't present himself as being remorseful but at the same time i didn't look at him and think that he was he seemed unaffected by it but he wasn't enjoying the retellings he didn't come across to me as someone who has a lot of hate in their heart and feeling uh he yeah. just came across to me as someone who was like hey i know i'm not guilty and this is kind of a waste of my time Agreed. But I think he may have known he wasn't guilty of being Ivan the Terrible. Sure, right. But I don't think that he really had remorse about his other actions. Okay. Which I do believe actually happened. Yeah, I do too. You know, you, I you, think you're that, probably, he might not have, I don't know, but yeah, maybe. Yeah, I just, I, I really felt like that he just didn't care. And he, you know, I don't know, nonverbal communication is what, 93% of something you know, like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I really felt like his body language and the communication with his eyes and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I really wanted him to care more. Whether he was Ivan the Terrible or not, have respect of the situation. It may have gotten, gotten him some leniency if he was smart, but he was really adamant. You know, when he did talk to the press and when he did talk to the cameras, it wasn't me. Uh, you know, it's a mistake on identity. Right. You know, and he was dismissive and you can be dismissive of the case, but don't be dismissive of what happened. Sure. It wasn't going to help him in this entire, you know, trial with all of these people coming out against him. He was so hated. So in 2011, he was sentenced to five years imprisonment for his role in, as an accessory to murder in the deaths of about 28,000 Jews. Um, he died at the age of 91 in 2012 mm -hmm. before his appeal could be heard by the courts. So, of course, that five-year sentence was mostly about him being 90 not, years old, yeah, exactly. 91 years old, and probably not having many more years. If you watch the video also, it's really interesting because there are times where he, to your point, Brittany, you know, he really, when he thought people were watching, 
he was a weak old man yes. in a chair who couldn't stand, who actually came into court on a gurney. On a gurney. Point, yeah, like a hospital and bed. He, and he wouldn't even open his eyes. Yeah. Now, this is not the first time that I've seen this. I have seen there was another situation uh, with one of those guys who, like, shot a bunch of people in a, not the movie theater, but he, he, one of the guys who was on trial for killing a whole lot uh-huh. of people with sure. a gun. He sat there in this, he refused to stand. He refused to open his eyes. Oh, I know what you're talking about. He was just sitting there in his chair and he was like, I'm just going to pretend like none of this is happening. Oh, I I can picture it, but I can't remember who it was. I know, me neither. But it's such a weird thing to do. Like, I'm just going to be like, it's Uh kind of like when I pick up the dog and he doesn't want (laughs) to be picked up and he's like dead weight. He's just like, I'm just going to lay here and just sink sink into the freaking sofa so you won't touch me. Just wait until it's over. Totally. And I kind of feel like that was what this guy was doing as well. I mean, and at 91, you know, I don't know how cognizant he was, but I did take the, to your point, the note about him feeling, seeming fine when he thought he wasn't being on camera, you know, he Uh was with his family and then this and that. My stepdad is not almost 90 years old. And I think of what it would be like for him to be. No, I'm not saying my stepdad by any means is, you know, a, a prison guard or a Nazi prison guard or whatever. I wasn't thinking you were suggesting that. But the thought of him being put through the paces of a trial and to, I don't even know if he could even fly to Germany. I mean, you sure. know, you're talking about the person at that age. It's really challenging for them in general just to understand what's happening. But I thought that Demonic did. I thought that he knew the whole time and he was just biding his time. I, I felt that way too. I really started to feel that way after he came back to the U.S. and watching his mannerisms change, particularly when he knew that he was being watched again and he was a suspect for another case. Yeah, it was crazy. Now, I do want to talk a little, because what I thought was interesting about this case, you know, because John Demonic aside and all the crimes, regardless of whether he was in the chair or if he was a prison guard, it's just more, to me, samesies. You kill one person, you yeah, kill a hundred thousand. I don't really care. It really care. doesn't matter at this point. Yeah. It doesn't matter at all. What I, the people I really felt for John Demonic was his family. I felt that, and I think that I still believe that they believe that he is not guilty. Right. But he, it, he himself admitted that he was a Sobibor. Yes. Right. That is, that is a concentration camp. And for them not to understand that there was some kind of responsibility, mm-hmm. he had to take some responsibility for his actions. And regardless of whether he was on the table, he still killed a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killed 100%. one person. Like, this is my dad. How do you feel when your dad, who you, you know, he, he totally, like, disregarded this for so many years. And all of a sudden, when he's 60 and then 70 and 80, yeah. now my dad's like this war criminal who killed a lot of people. So, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, so I have a couple thoughts on that. Going back to the initial trial when he was in Israel and when he was found guilty, I I see this in criminal cases all the time, and I have very mixed feelings about it. I'm of the belief, and maybe I'd be, maybe I would feel different if I was the one victimized or my family was, but I'm of the belief I don't want someone to be found guilty. I want the person. And if I'm in trial or watching a trial and there's enough evidence to support that the person, the defendant is not guilty, I don't want that person to go to prison. Yeah. I want to still go out there and find out who it is. Yeah. I'm not going to get peace if someone who maybe clearly didn't do it is in prison suffering. I'm still going to feel terrible. Yeah. But now on the other side of the coin, talking about John's family, 
I don't know how they would feel or how they felt once they really had irrefutable evidence against him that he was a Nazi guard, but they still defended him. And, oh, yeah. And I would say if I, again, I would think if I was in that position and I never have and won't be, hopefully, that I would probably try and look at it objectively and say, you know what, this is my father, this is my grandfather, and I love him because he's family to me, but what he did is unspeakable and heinous, and the punishment that he's getting is deserving. His family continued to defend him, even though it was irrefutable, and became very angered and defiant that how could this person that is grandpa to them and dad and always this loving person, he can't, whatever he did before he did before, that's not who he is now. Right. And I would have a hard time with that because knowing the actions that this person did, even if he is a loved one, I don't know how I would reconcile that. Well, absolutely. And how do you reconcile that with others? Yes. I, you're right. The family did continue to defend him. And I, and I, in some way believe a bit that for their own sanity, they had to continue to believe it because the alternative would be for them to believe that their grandfather and their father was a monster. Right. So in 2012, you know, Demonic died. He died at 91 in his obituary in the New York times. His son is quoted as saying, history will show Germany used him as a scapegoat to blame helpless Ukrainian POWs for the deeds of Nazi Germans. So I find this statement really strange. Mm-hmm. And I go back to motivation of providing information. Why did the KGB mm-hmm. want this person prosecuted for this crime? What is their motivation? I don't get it. Like, why do we believe the KGB? Why does the KGB care about Nazi war criminals? Like, well, I mean, what was their stake in that game? On one hand, think about it also that East Germany was part of the Soviet Union at that time. So there may have been something there that they still, there was a German alliance to the Soviet Union, or the Soviet Union, I should say, had an alliance to East Germany. And the KGB, of course, is, the way I understand it, the CIA of exactly. Russia. So... That may have been them still just doing their due diligence, but anytime your number one sworn enemy comes to you and offers evidence, I would think you'd have to take that with a huge grain of salt yeah. and n- not be ready and willing. Now, I, I think the United States still conducted their own investigation after they got this information from the KGB, but they never would have had the Soviet Union not provided it to the U.S. Yeah, agreed. And again, you know, I don't know what the KGB's motivation for this was. What is, how does it help them for finding, you know, for calling out Nazi war criminals? Again, jurisdiction for the U.S. is limited because, you know, while they're, of course, everybody was against the Nazis Holocaust situation and all of the killing. It was, it, it's, it is still really strange. I just don't know why anybody cared. Like, why target this guy? Why give a list? Why, why go through all that trouble? Why start it from the beginning? I don't know what the KGB had to gain from it. I don't either. I mean, I, I would like to think, and even though this kind of goes against my personality, cause I'm always looking for the other side of it, but I'm, I'm going to take the most optimistic point of view and say 
they did this because they felt that it was the right thing to do. And this man was a horrible person and he needed to be brought to justice. Current political situations aside. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, um, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if the, I don't know if I'll ever believe that Russia really has the best interest of others at heart. And, 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 and I say that based on previous, um, leadership in Russia and sure. current leadership in Russia as well. Yeah. They have not shown me that they have any kind of human instinct when it comes to the protection and, uh, of civil rights and, and of people in general. No, I agree. And le- there's a part of me that feels that way also. I guess I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm choosing to take the positive side on this one, but yeah. I don't, I wouldn't doubt that what you're saying is true. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. So again, that was our mini up for the Neville or the Netflix, the devil next door documentary. I don't think we, we can really call it. I don't think we can really call it a mini up. We're going to call it a companion episode okay. because you, you really need to go watch this documentary. Yeah. And I think we're going to make this kind of a regular thing because this is, I think this is a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, even though we enjoy researching and diving into cases, when we can just kind of like kick back and watch a documentary or docu- docu-series and then share opinions on it, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, I, I definitely. And I think we talked about this before. One of the reasons that it's fun for us, we have a perspective because we are filmmakers and we are actively involved in mm-hmm. the entertainment industry. We, our perspective is different than others because we look at, when we look at a documentary or when we look at a, any kind of content at all, we look at it in ways that others don't. I in particular can't really go to movies anymore and not think about what's on the screen uh-huh. and how much it's costing and how effective is it? And wow, how did they get there from that? You know, that arc was amazing. I mean, there yeah. are so many things that we think about because this is our daily, you know, business. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to these companion episodes because this is how we get a lot of our information and we're in the business. So we really enjoy making content. So, you know, for us to be this close to it, I find really fascinating. So you're going to, our fans will hear a lot more from us about these kinds of uh, companion episodes. Let us know if you guys have suggestions about things that you would like us to talk about. I want to hear from you because we're constantly bouncing docu documentaries off each other and and making recommendations, but I want to hear your recommendations. Also, what do you think is out there and Either is it good? Is it provocative? Is it entertaining? Yeah. Uh, does it make you think? Is it sad? I would love if we just like had a list of things that we just started crossing off. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And maybe it's not even a documentary. Maybe it's a narrative story that is truly, and I'm using air quotes right now, based on actual events. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun to look at how the the movie or series depicts the actions versus what actually happened. I think that Blumhouse should do Ivan the Terrible, a, a, a movie about Ivan the Terrible. That would be interesting. Just I, because I'd like to see him walk around in the United States and just in his general, like... Okay. Do, do you guys remember, and, and I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, the apt pupil. The what? Apt pupil. Oh, no, but you've told me about it. Yeah, it's freaking bananas uh-huh. and it's great it's yeah. uh, uh the guy who plays magneto yeah you know ian mckellen yes fantastic and uh brad renfro who is amazing and no longer with us um he it's a, it's a brian singer movie so there's that do with that what you will yeah yes uh lots of conversations about that movie in yes anyway 
Google it. Uh, but it's such a fascinating movie because, you know, and it's a Stephen King, that's a Stephen King short story. Yeah. So the Ian McKellen character, you know, he is a Nazi war criminal, you know, he is, you know, sitting there in the midst of like normal society. Uh So you haven't seen this? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm not going to go too far, but we should talk about it. You should watch it. We should talk about it. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. I've tried to find it and it's not streaming. Well, I haven't looked recently, but when I did, it wasn't streaming. We'll find it for you. Okay. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot to talk about because yeah. there's a lot of accusations about some of the way that that movie was shot. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I've heard some of those accusations. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, and I heard them firsthand yeah. from the people who were actually in the scenes. He, But at the end of the day, it's about a Nazi war criminal who yep. befriends a, a youth in the neighborhood. And that youth proceeds to get information out of that Nazi war criminal that was surprising and interesting and fascinating and just showed how sophisticated young people are today <laughs> and their ability to manipulate and communicate with adults when and, and, and adults aren't even smart enough to get it. For some reason, your voice just set off my watch, so there's a little bit of going to be in this recording. Oh, wow. Check it out. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks again to all of our Scarlet supporters. Want to give a shout out to our friend John McGrew, who provided the music for our podcast. Uh, another shout out to Juan Mezzaleone for our logo design. All right. Have a good one, Scarlettos. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.